Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're happy to be worshiping here with you this morning. And Rick, you will always be first place in our hearts. So. Well, last week, we began the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And in that story, this 75-year-old man packs up his barren wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, and everything else he owns, and heads out on an adventure. And it's all because God told him to. God promised to bless Abraham, to bless his family, and make him the father of a great nation. And that the rest of the world would be blessed through them as well. When Abraham hears this, he obeys and he worships. He enters into a relationship with God. He becomes a friend of God. But of course, there's one big obstacle to this incredible promise from God becoming reality. The obstacle is that Abraham is old and Sarah is barren. And if Abraham's going to be the father of a great nation, they'll need to have a baby. And at this point, what are the chances of that? So clearly this calling and this promise from God will require astounding faith in the face of great odds. But then on top of lacking a child, at times Abraham himself can be an obstacle to the promise of God. While he's passing through Egypt, he allows fear to lead him into sin, lying about his wife. Doubt clouds his judgment, and he almost loses Sarah as a result. At another instance, he apparently worries that God might not be able to give him a child through Sarah's womb, and so he sleeps with his servant Hagar instead. Hagar does end up having an important child by the name of Ishmael, but Ishmael is not the child of promise. And yet, despite these failings, despite Abraham's occasional feelings of hopelessness and doubt, despite Abraham's occasional wavering and weaknesses, God doesn't abandon the promise that he made to Abraham. God is faithful to Abraham, even when Abraham is less than faithful to God. And time and time again, God reminds Abraham of the calling and the promise that he's been given. But then interestingly, when you get to the New Testament, you see a very different image of Abraham than the inconsistent and stumbling image we saw last week. New Testament authors wrote about Abraham quite a bit. He's an important figure. And he makes several appearances in the book of Romans. For example, Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In those verses, Paul is arguing that Jews and Gentiles alike can be considered the offspring of Abraham, children of God, not just because they follow the law, but because they have faith. Verse 18, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul clearly has a high view of Abraham and views him as a wonderful example of faith. James has a reverent view of Abraham, too. He cites him as an example of someone who didn't have just some kind of theoretical or invisible kind of faith. But Abraham had a faith that manifested itself in actions. James says that Abraham had a faith that worked. Likewise, the author of Hebrews includes Abraham as one of the greatest examples of faith throughout all of Israel's history. So what exactly is the deal? Because up to this point in the story that we've read, we've seen Abraham as an imperfect man who didn't always have the kind of faith that you'd want to imitate. But then by the time you get to the New Testament, Abraham has this reputation of admirable and maybe even heroic faith. So what are we missing? What happened in between those two writings? Well, there's one specific event in Abraham's life that we'll read about this morning. One display of faith that stands above all the rest. The event that we read about today forever cements Abraham's legacy as a man of astounding faith. Now, of course, there are many significant events in Abraham's life that we didn't cover last week and we won't read about today. There is his defeat of the foreign kings who hold Lot hostage in his conversation with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. There's Abraham pleading for God to relent from destroying the wicked abyss that was Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19. There's Abraham's shrewd dealings with King Abimelech in chapters 20 and 21. Now, all of those events are important, and I'd encourage you to read those passages to learn more about Abraham. But the truth is that none of them stand out like the monumental event we read this morning. That's from Genesis chapter 22, and it's commonly referred to as the sacrifice of Isaac. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Feel free to use one of ours if you need to, and take one home if you don't have one. But before we do any reading in Genesis 22, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you for your word. Inspired, true, authoritative, powerful, heart-changing, and life-changing. But Father, more than anything, your word is simply a good story. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind us of how wonderful a story this is. The story of Abraham. That you are writing an incredible story, and that you invite us to be a part of it. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the culmination of everything we read about in the Old Testament, everything we read about in the New Testament. Everything comes back to that cross on top of that mountain in Jerusalem. The reason that we can call ourselves 
children of Abraham, the reason that we can call ourselves your children, the reason that we can be confident in our salvation is because of what Christ did on that cross. And so, Father, we thank you and we glorify him. But, Father, as we read Genesis 22 this morning, give us clear eyes. Help us to understand what your word has to say to us in this day and age, what it means for us and the lives that you've given us right now. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, near the end of last week's sermon, we mentioned that Isaac was finally born of Sarah's womb. And that happens in Genesis chapter 21. It turns out that she and Abraham only had to wait a measly 25 years after the promise was first issued. Now, this birth of Isaac, of course, is a joyous occasion. After all the fears, doubts, confusion, frustration, and anticipation of the past 25 years, it's clear that the promise is finally moving forward. This beautiful child is no longer just a figment of Abraham and Sarah's imaginations. He's real. They can see him. They can touch him. They can hear him. And after a moment like that, after such a long wait, Abraham and Sarah must have been on top of the world. They thought that nothing could ever take that joy from them, that God had finally given them the promise that he gave them so long ago. But then we turn to Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So wait a minute. What? After all that waiting, all that anticipation, God finally gave Abraham and Sarah a baby boy. They finally had a descendant who would grow into a great nation. And as time has passed, they've grown to adore this child. Isaac is the very embodiment of all of Abraham and Sarah's hopes and dreams. He is the living, breathing proof that God keeps his promises. But now God commands Abraham to kill him. At best, this command seems counterproductive. Why would God have Abraham kill Isaac? Isaac is the linchpin that holds the whole promise together. And at worst, this command seems barbaric. There are few actions in the pages of Scripture more hideous and more strongly denounced than child sacrifice. But keep in mind, as we read Genesis 22, we know something that Abraham doesn't. We know that God is testing Abraham. That word translated testing can also mean to train, exercise, or prove. It's worth mentioning that God doesn't need a test to find out whether or not Abraham trusts him. The same way he didn't actually have to ask Adam and Eve where they were hiding in the Garden of Eden. God knows everything. He's God, for God's sake. But sometimes a test isn't for the benefit of the teacher. It's for the benefit of the student. 
like a comprehensive exam at the end of a semester. Perhaps this test is meant to remind Abraham of things he's already learned. Perhaps it's meant to teach him a valuable and important lesson in a way that he will never forget. But of course, the big question is, how will Abraham respond? Chapter 22, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. These words sound similar to the very first time that God spoke to Abraham, way back in chapter 12, when God called him to pack up and go. And just like that first calling 25 years earlier, Abraham doesn't hesitate to listen. Now, you have to ask, why is Abraham so obedient? If there's ever been a time for Abraham to second guess God's instructions, that time is now. Well, to be completely honest, part of why Abraham listens may be the culture that he was part of. To us, the concept of someone sacrificing their child in obedience to their God sounds horrific and rightfully so. But to a man of Abraham's day and age, child sacrifice simply wasn't that uncommon. Now, all that being said, surely at some level, Abraham is heartbroken. He's probably confused. Maybe he had come to believe after 25 years that his God wasn't like those other so-called gods of the surrounding nations. Those other gods might be cruel and monstrous and demand child sacrifice, but not his God, right? Nevertheless, the command is clear, and so Abraham obeys. We pick up in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So Abraham takes Isaac leaves the servants and the donkey behind, and they go off to worship. It's noteworthy that Isaac carries the wood. There's been debate about how old Isaac was when this event took place. Most say he was a teenager, but some argue he may have been even older than that. If nothing else, this does tell us that Isaac is old enough to carry their supplies up the mountain. However, he's also young enough to innocently and almost naively ask, Father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? 
Put yourself in Abraham's shoes at that moment. How gut-wrenching do you think that question would have been? But Abraham doesn't give Isaac a straight answer. He simply says that God will provide. Now, do you think Abraham dodged that question because he really did believe that God would provide something else for the sacrifice? Or could he simply not bear to tell Isaac the gruesome truth? But as events move forward, Abraham ties Isaac up, puts him on the altar, and prepares to perform the most horrific act of worship that you could ever imagine. Again, if Isaac was a teenager, he presumably could have run. He could have resisted. Abraham's an old man right now. But Isaac doesn't run. He doesn't resist. It appears that Abraham isn't the only obedient man of the story. And then we reach that moment of truth. Abraham standing over his beloved son with a knife in his hand. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian from the 1800s and one of the most influential thinkers of his time. And yet he was so perplexed and so fascinated by this story that he wrote an entire book about it. The book was called Fear and Trembling. And the inspiration for the title is that Kierkegaard imagined Abraham trembling as he prepared to kill Isaac with that knife in his hand. Kierkegaard's reflections and conclusions on this passage are definitely interesting, but I think a faithful reader of Scripture would have to reject them. But like Kierkegaard, you may be sitting here and you may be some combination of fascinated and perplexed as you read this story. Better yet, you might be disturbed, disgusted, or horrified that God would test Abraham in this way. But before you jump to any firm conclusions, we have to at least see how the story ends. So we pick up in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So at that last possible moment, an angel stops Abraham's blade from slitting Isaac's throat. Abraham's fear of God, faith in God, and obedience to God have been sufficiently tested, trained, exercised, and proven. It turns out that Abraham's vague answer to Isaac's earlier question was actually correct. God really did provide an animal for the sacrifice, and it wasn't Isaac. The ram is sacrificed on the altar, and Abraham names that mountain the Lord will provide. Now notice what that mountain isn't named. The mountain is not named Abraham's faith. 
It's not named Isaac's submission. It's not named Ram's bad luck. It's named the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That's the lesson that Abraham and maybe even Isaac, too, needed to learn, needed to be reminded of. The Lord will provide. And it's safe to say that after an experience like that, it's a lesson that Abraham and Isaac will never forget. We close Genesis 22, starting in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So after the dust clears, God once again confirms his promise to Abraham, like he's done more than once already. But this time, God goes one step further. He gives Abraham an oath. I swear by myself. In the Old Testament, the strongest oath a person could ever give you was if they said, as surely as the Lord lives. If a person made a commitment and put that oath with it and then didn't keep their word, they would face severe consequences. And here God makes an oath. He swears by his very own name that the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. So again, it's safe to say that Abraham learned a valuable lesson that day. And the lesson is God will provide. Abraham passed the test. In the darkest moment of his entire life, Abraham displayed astounding obedience, unbelievable faith at a level that he had never done before. One commentator writes, when Abraham obeyed God's mandate to leave Ur, back in chapter 12, he simply gave up his past. But when he was summoned to Mount Moriah to deliver his own son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. And even though the lesson that Abraham learned is clear, God will provide, you can't help but wonder. Why did God test Abraham like this? Wasn't there some far less traumatic way that God could have taught Abraham the exact same lesson? Well, some wonder whether Abraham may have grown to love Isaac too much. Perhaps he had begun to love the blessing that God gave more than God himself. Maybe Abraham had come to view Isaac more as his own accomplishment. His own ticket to fame, fortune, success, and power, rather than a gift from God, and someone who ultimately still belongs to God. John Calvin writes this about Genesis 22. This example is for our imitation, that in some situations, the only remedy is to leave the event to God, 
in order that he may open up a way for us, even when there is none. In other words, there are times when all you can do is obey God's commands, even when it seems illogical, unreasonable, or will even cost you dearly. There are some situations where you simply have to obey and let God work out the rest. There are some situations that you simply have to obey and trust that the Lord will provide. However, even with those considerations, you may still find yourself disturbed by a story like this. Well, thankfully, the authors of the New Testament fill in some of the gaps that leave us so confused. A big passage to consider is Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17. We read there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the important part. Verse 19. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So according to the author of Hebrews, Abraham obeyed because he believed the entire time that God could raise Isaac from the dead. If you look again at Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, Abraham told the servants that he and Isaac would return together after their worship is complete. It appears that Abraham wasn't saying that to the servants just to get them off the scent. He really believed that he and Isaac would come back together. Abraham trusts that even if God's promise required the death of his only son, his beloved son, that God could still ultimately come through. Because we're talking about the God who can raise the dead to life. If you're a Christian, some of this might sound familiar. And as we read the New Testament story of Jesus, we can't help but see some similarities. Jesus was another child born in miraculous circumstances, similar to Isaac. Jesus would carry his cross, the tool of his own demise, up the mountain called Golgotha. Kind of like Isaac carried the wood that would burn his body on Mount Moriah. Jesus would humbly submit himself to his father's command to die as a sacrifice. Just like Isaac allowed Abraham to bind him on that altar. Jesus is the one beloved son of God. Just like Isaac is the one beloved son of Abraham and Sarah. But of course, there's one big difference in these two stories. And the difference is that Jesus, the son of God, actually dies. There's no angel to stop the hammers nailing Jesus's hands and feet the way an angel stopped Abraham's knife. And this all occurs so that sinners from all nations of the earth would be blessed, might become children of Abraham, children of God, given the gift of salvation. As we close, there's one more passage from Hebrews to look at, and it's Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, 
he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This promise that we've been given as believers in Christ, salvation through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, our promise is just as sure and just as steadfast as the promise that God gave to Abraham when he swore by himself. That's why we can say with confidence that as surely as the Lord lives, we will be saved. As surely as the Lord lives, we can hold fast our eternal hope. As surely as the Lord lives, those who wait patiently obtain the promise. And as surely as the Lord lives, Jesus will serve as the anchor of our souls. And it's all because on a mountain, some 2,000 years ago, God provided the perfect lamb for a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And that sacrifice wasn't Isaac tied to an altar. It wasn't a ram caught in a thicket. As surely as the Lord lives, the sacrifice that saves us was Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful to your word, that you are faithful to your promises. These days we see so many people who swear by their own dignity, by their own honor, that they will never let us down, that they will keep their promises, that they will not fail us, that they will fulfill their commitments. And yet, every single one of us, I'm sure, has an experience where someone made an oath and they broke the oath. Every single one of us probably has a story where we made an oath, we made a promise, and we broke it. We fell short. But Father, thank you that you do not fall short, that you keep your promises, that you keep your oaths. And Father, thank you that we are the beneficiaries of this wonderful promise of Christ dying on the cross. That because of his broken body, because of his shed blood, we are saved. And we don't have to question that. We don't have to doubt that. We don't have to wonder whether or not that's really true. We know for sure. And Father, thank you that your son willingly, obediently sacrificed himself on that cross. That his life wasn't taken from him, but he gave up his life for sinners like us. We are in awe of that and in awe of your son. So, Father, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, 
that you would give us the faith of Abraham. That in the darkest moments of our lives, when all seems lost, when there's nothing but confusion and chaos and despair, that we would trust that you provide. That we would obey, even when it's costly, and trust that you know what is best for us, and you have what is best for us in store in eternity. Help us to remember that you will provide because you've provided Christ in the past. You'll provide again for us in the future. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.